turn to the book of Luke. Uh, when Pastor Kyle invited me to come and preach and fill in for you guys, he said, um, this time it's, it's your choice. Preach whatever you want. And so at Cornerstone, we've been working our way through the book of Luke. And so I decided to visit a passage that I really enjoyed recently. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 18. Now, as we look at this passage today, something that I've noticed and I've talked about with our church, and I was actually just at a parents meeting and we were having a similar conversation. A lot of times when we look at the gospels, we tend to be very familiar with the gospels. We tend to have read through the gospels. We tend to have sat in Sunday school, many of us, maybe not all of us, but some of us in this room probably were in Sunday school at some point, learning the stories of scripture. And so there's always the the opportunity, an opportunity not being a good word, but there is the opportunity for us to visit a passage of scripture with which we're familiar and just sort of gloss over it. I know that story. I know what Jesus said, good. Today at Cornerstone, we just did Luke chapter 20 where the Pharisees try to trick Jesus about taxes. We'll give to Caesar what is Caesar and give to God what is God's. And so it's very easy for us to just gloss over that. But one of our other pastors took time and really talked about the sin of the Pharisees in that passage and how we can be guilty of the same sin. It's not only something you think of when you think of that passage, because once again, we're familiar with it. And we just tend to say, I'm here, I'm there, I move on. It's one of the reasons I, as a pastor and just as an individual Christian, am not the biggest fan of reading through the Bible in a year plans. I think they're great. I think you should read through the entire Bible. But sometimes when we do that, what do we do? It's a checklist and it's a rush. I've got to read my 10 chapters today or I'm going, to get, I'm going to get out of whack and I'm going to be reading for three hours on Saturday afternoon and I don't want to have to be doing that. That's not a bad thing, but I don't ever want us as believers to get to a point where we're just rushing through scripture and we're missing what's really there. And so today we're going to be looking at a passage that is 2,000 years old. It was spoken and written and recorded in a context vastly different from ours. I don't think anyone in this room would say they are intimately familiar with the culture of first century Judaism. We may have learned about it. We may have studied a little bit of it, but to be like really intimately familiar. And if we were dropped in that culture today, would we be able to interact and survive very well? Probably not. Nevertheless, the word of God is living and active and it is given to us for our equipping so that we may be competent, fully prepared for every good work. So even though these stories, even though what we read in scripture is anywhere from 2000 plus years old, it's still good and it's still for us. So I am going to be reading Luke chapter 18, verses 18 to 30. This is the story of the rich young ruler. Once again, as soon as I said that, some of you probably went, oh yeah, I know this one. You're not gonna say it out loud now, but that's what you're thinking. The rich young ruler, not a long, not a long passage. Follow along as I read. A ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. I've kept all these from my youth, he said. When Jesus heard this, he told him, you still lack one thing. Sell all you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. After he heard this, he became extremely sad because he was very rich. 
Seeing that it became sad, Jesus said, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. That's a downer, you know. Those who heard it, this asked, then who can be saved? He, Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Then Peter said, look, we have left, we, we have left and what we have, we followed you. So he said to them, truly I tell you, there is no one who has left a house, wife, or brothers, or sisters, or parents, or children because of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more at this time an eternal life in the age to come. Now let's look at this rich young ruler, okay? On the surface, we see a guy who seems to have it all. He's rich. He's in some type of position of authority. He's got a government job, government housing, government health care, government benefits. You know, he's got it all together. Like I said, he's rich. He seems to be a good dude. He's not committing adultery. He's not a murderer. He's not a thief. He's not a liar. And he honors his parents. This seems like just the kind of guy you'd want to have be a part of your church, right? Dependable. He's not going to bring shame upon the church, and he's probably going to tithe. But there's an issue with his heart, and that's what we're really going to get at here. He seems to be genuinely seeking faith. So he shows up on Sunday morning, and he's asking all the right questions. Well, come on in, brother. But there's something missing there because he's not understanding his own sinfulness. And he's not willing to recognize where he misses the mark. And so what we see here is not so much Jesus teaching about possessions. Once again, we can sometimes rush through it and miss it. But the gist of this, if I use some of that language by educators, the gist of this is salvation. So I'm going to ask a question that we're going to answer in today's text. And the question we're going to answer this morning, if you're taking notes is what does this encounter teach us about salvation? What does this particular encounter teach us about salvation? I wanna pray for us once again, and then we're gonna dive into answering this question. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, as I've already said, your word is living and active. It is breathed out by you. It is inerrant, it is infallible, it is inspired, and it is for our good. And so, Lord, we pray with the psalmist this morning that you would open our eyes, that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. And it is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. What does this encounter teach us about salvation? Well, the first thing we see is this in verses 18 to 22, is that we are unable to save ourselves through good works. We will never be able to save ourselves through the good things that we do. Let's look in verses 18 to 22 again. A ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And the guy says, I've done all that. I've kept all these from my youth. Now, one of the things we know about Jesus, if you read through the gospels, and as we've seen in in my church, as we've been working our way through the book of Luke, Jesus rarely answers questions directly, but he answers questions with questions. And he answers, with questions with, he answers questions with questions to make a point. And what he's pointing out here is this dude's pride. 
He's making, he, he's, he's making a point to call this guy out on pride. So here, just let's frame this for a second here, okay? Here's this good dude standing in front of God incarnate, okay? Let's, let's understand this. Good dude, God incarnate. God incarnate asked this guy a question and dude lies to God incarnate. He says there, he stands there and says, I have kept all the law every moment of my life. How many of you in here are either parents with small children or have been parents of small children at some point? Okay, the one thing that I believe proves the doctrine of original sin more than anything else is a toddler. It's a toddler because their favorite words are no and, see if you can guess this, mine. You got, you got it, mine. You guys have had small children, clearly, you know. Mine. We see this in people. We see this sinfulness. And this guy is, is st- standing here and he's being prideful. Now, Paul in Romans 3 tells us there's no one who does good. He's essentially quoting Psalm 14. So this dude, if he has been raised as a good Jew, he knows the Psalms by heart. He knows what the Bible says. And yet he's personally aware of the fact that no one can keep the entire law. And he stands there and says he has done that. And it's not possible to keep the whole law. Jesus points this out in the Sermon on the Mount. So if you want to hold your place there, I'm going to be reading from Matthew chapter 5. I could read all of Matthew chapter 5, but I'm not going to do that. You can read that on your own. And one of the things we see in the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus really raises the bar on what the expectation of the law is, that it goes beyond our actual actions into the thoughts and attitudes of our mind and our hearts. But he says this, I didn't come to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom. Whatever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And here's the clincher here. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus is saying that to a Jewish audience, and the scribes and the Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day. Unless you're more holy than your holiest religious leader, you're never going to get into heaven. James points this out later. James chapter 2, verse 10. You want to talk about some bad news? Here's some bad news for us. James 2, 10. For whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. So before we ever think that we are good enough to be in a relationship with God, that we are good enough to receive salvation, that we are good enough on our own actions to enter into the kingdom of heaven, let us be clear here that we have all stumbled at one point or another, so we are guilty of it all. 
We can never measure up to God's standards of holiness because even when we have the rules spelled out for us, we still disobey. I mean, I, I, could, I could do a social experiment right now. I could go out in the hallway and I could build a little complex here in the middle with a big red button and put a sign that says, do not push the big red button. And I guarantee you there would be somebody in this building, probably a child, maybe an adult, who would push the red button. Why? Because we like breaking rules. It's in our nature, apart from Christ. If we are open to the work of the Spirit, we may learn about other areas where we're a failure. We may see other things that are wrong with us. And this young man begins to see that there's more than just pride going on here. At least Jesus is pointing out more than pride. So what does this passage teach us about salvation? It's not just about our good works. But number two, we also see that we are unable to save ourselves with possessions. We are unable to save ourselves with possessions. Luke 18, verses 22 to 25. When Jesus heard this, that is him saying, I kept all these things from my youth, he said, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. After he, the rich young ruler, heard this, he became extremely sad because he was very rich. And then Jesus essentially goes on to say, it is very difficult for rich people to enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And just wrap your head around that imagery there. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, There are some misconceptions that existed in the first century and that still exist today. And the misconception is, is that if you have a lot of stuff, you are blessed by God. That was a misconception then that the people who were rich clearly had done something correctly and God was blessing them. And we see that today. I mean, you can just go on Instagram, go on Twitter, go on Facebook and search hashtag blessed and you're gonna see examples of that. If if I've got it all together, clearly God is doing something for me and I'm doing something right. Riches are not a sign of that. Yes, God may choose to bless some of us. And I would take a pause here and say that if God has blessed you financially and you have an amazing job and you have money that you can do whatever you want with, I would say he has blessed you to be generous to your church and to the mission of God that there are missionaries who need to be on the field, who cannot get on the field because they haven't yet raised the funds and you are the person they need to meet. I can say that because I'm not on staff here. So I'm gonna, that's. (laughs) But in all seriousness, our, our, our our finances is not a sign of God's blessing and our lack of finances is not a sign that God's blessing is missing from us. Some of the godliest people I have met in my life were some of the poorest people I've ever seen in the heart of Africa. But they were godly. And the blessing of God was upon their lives. Possessions in and of themselves are not bad, 
but they can lead us to idolatry. They can lead us to sin to the point where we would prefer our possessions over Christ. Now, this man had just claimed in the presence of God incarnate that he had not broken any of the law. Really? Let's look at the book of Exodus, chapter 20. Let's see if you have broken the law. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 3. God spoke, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of a place of slavery. Do not have other gods besides me. R.C. Sproul says this. The very first commandment prohibits any kind of idolatry. Obviously, Jesus detected in this rich man someone who not only enjoyed his wealth, but was so hung up on money that virtually he worshiped it. He had turned his money into an idol. And that is why Jesus said it is hard for a rich man to be saved. To be saved requires him to leave his God behind. I'm a church planter by training. I planted a church. That's what I did here. You know, who knows where God will use me in the future to plant other churches or encourage other church plants. But as I have studied church planting, especially church planting in this city, we have had so much success across denominational lines, planting in a plethora of communities throughout the city. We have planted churches among Muslims, among Jews, among Hindus, among African-Americans, among white Americans, among Hispanic Americans, among lots of different communities. But the one community that we have continued, I say we as church planting organizations, have continued to struggle to plant churches in is among that top percent of earners here in New York City. We have struggled as organizations to make inroads into places like the Upper East Side, Battery Park City, financial district. Why? Because people with money think they've got it all together. I have everything I need. Why would I need God? And that's exactly what Jesus is pointing out here, that you have to leave that behind and follow me. 1 Timothy 6.10 lays it out clear. I need to look at 1 Timothy, not 2 Timothy. That'd be helpful. 1 Timothy 6.10. I'm going to I'm gonna back up just a little bit here to verse six. Let me just read this. But godliness without, with contentment is great gain for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out. Verse eight, listen to this. And let the Holy Spirit prick your hearts and, and ask yourself if this is you. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. Verse 10, for the love of money is a root. It's a root of all kinds of evil. And by craving it, that is by craving money, some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. Some translations say pierce themselves with many pains. Once again, I tell the people at Cornerstone this, you will never hear me say from the pulpit that possessions are bad, that money is bad, that we should not necessarily even as, I think about some of you in the room who are husbands and fathers and are providers, that we should not long that our families are taken care of and that our kids are able to afford to go to school and we can put clothes on their backs and food on the table. That's not bad and longing for that. 
it becomes sin when we long for that more than we long for Jesus. It becomes sin when we long for our bank accounts to be above zero more than we long for our sin to be cast at the feet of Jesus. That's when it becomes sin. Jesus said it like this in Matthew chapter six, verses 19 to 20, let me turn there. Once again, getting to the Sermon on the Mount. Don't store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. No one can serve two masters, this is verse 24, since either he will hate one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Once again, it's not that it's bad. Where's your heart? Where's your passion? Where, where do you put all of your devotion to? I'll be honest with you, we had a, we had a men's group on, on Friday night. Once, once every other month, our men come together and we look at a passage of scripture and we pray for one another, that kind of thing. And I was honest with him. We were talking about you know, husbands and providing for your family. I said, guys, not a day goes by that I don't think about money. I don't know if some of you men are in the same category, but there's not a day goes by that I don't think about money because I'm thinking about a bill that just came in or I'm thinking about the fact that my car needs its windshield worked on or I'm thinking about the fact that my daughter's horseback riding lessons, the bill just came due for that or then I got a life insurance bill in the mail or my water bill just came, it's bill, 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 bill. I mean, not a day goes by that I don't think about it. Once again, it becomes sin when that is all of my thoughts. When I spend every waking moment thinking about that and not taking the time to think about Christ. And let's be honest, this city makes it really hard. This city makes it really hard because we are living in one of the most expensive places in North America. We are. And what do we see? Let's be honest, we walk, even in Bay Ridge, it, it, it's amazing to me that when I walk down my block, I don't necessarily see Toyotas and Hondas. I see BMWs and Land Rovers parked on the street. <laughs> Come on. We live in a city where people want to show off that they've made it, whether it's the way they dress or the car that they drive or the apartment that they get. And social media has made it so much worse. And let's be clear, what you see on social media is filtered. It's not real life. And we become, to, we get to a point where we think, if that's not me, then what is going on? God, what is wrong with me? Turn to Psalm 73. I want us to wrap our heads around the Lord's word. Now, Vivian asked me if I'm gonna read the whole thing and I'm gonna read the whole thing, okay? We're gonna read the whole thing. It's not long. You guys can sit here for a few more minutes and read the Bible, right? At least you can't say it's football season, okay? God is indeed good to Israel, to the pure in heart. But as for me, my feet almost slipped. My steps nearly went astray. For I envied the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have an easy time until they die. Their bodies are well fed. They are not in trouble like others. They are not afflicted like most people. 
Pride is their necklace and violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge out from fatness. The imagination of their hearts run wild. They mock, they speak maliciously. They arrogantly threaten oppression. They set their mouths against heaven and their tongues strut across the earth. Therefore, his people turn to them and drink in their overflowing words. And the wicked say, how can God know? Does the most high know everything? Look at them, the wicked. They are always at ease and they increase their wealth. Have you ever had a moment where that has been you, where you have thought that? I have. Here I am, moved to New York City to plant a church. Two beautiful children, born here in New York, find out we're pregnant with number three, leading a church, things are just going well. Have a miscarriage go to the hospital for the miscarriage, find out my wife doesn't just have a miscarriage, has cancer. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Imagine being me in that moment, you know? I had one of those moments. God, I'm looking at all these people around and they have everything. And here I am serving you and it's like you're taking it all away from me. Sort of like Job, you have one of those Job moments. Psalm 73, did I purify my heart and wash my hands in innocence for nothing? For I'm afflicted all day long. I'm punished every morning. If I decided to say these things aloud, I would have betrayed your people. We wouldn't dare say these things, you know. We keep this stuff inside. When I tried to understand this, it seemed hopeless until I entered God's sanctuary. And then I understand their destiny. focus shifts. Indeed, Lord, you put them in slippery places and you make them fall into ruin. How suddenly they become a desolation. They come to an end, swept away by terrors, like one waking from a dream. Lord, when arising, you will despise their image. When I became embittered and my innermost being was wounded, I was stupid and didn't understand. This is one of those CSB translations that I like right here. I was stupid. When I was questioning God, why me? I was being stupid. Some of you parents are like, man, I'm glad the kids aren't in here because I'm trying to teach my kids not to say that word. I was an unthinking animal toward you, yet I am always with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me up in glory. Who do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. Those far from you will certainly perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, God's presence is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge so I can tell about all you do. Man, Psalm 73 frames it, doesn't it? Take a step back and think about your life and the things you see in the city. And those times that you think, man, those people over there have it all together. Why God, why not me? I am always with you, you hold my right hand, and afterward you will take me up into glory. Who really really has it all together? It's not the people who the world says have it all together, it's the church. We're the ones who have everything. It may not seem like that to the world, but we really have it, and this is one of those moments when I ask you to search your heart. God, have I been stupid toward you Have I been an unthinking animal? Have I missed your blessing in my life because I've been pursuing the things of the world? 
if we look at Luke, there's a, there's a problem here because Jesus says it is almost impossible for a rich man or anyone to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's almost impossible. So Jesus gives a clear answer to the disciples who ask, who then can be saved? The third thing we see in this passage is this, is that salvation is a work of God alone. Verse 26, Luke 18, those who heard this asked, who can be saved? And Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Turn to Ephesians chapter two. If you were to ask me, Pastor Nate, what is your favorite passage in all of scripture? I would tell you it is Ephesians chapter two. It's Ephesians chapter two. Now I'm gonna mess Vivian up again here. I'm gonna read more than the verses I gave you. So just, just roll with me, okay? I'm gonna start in verse one. I told her I was only gonna do verse eight to 10. I'm gonna start in verse one because I want you to see the goodness in this passage. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler, the power of air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We, t- we too, all of us, previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts and were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. That is a grim picture of humanity right there. We are all children under wrath. We are, excuse me, dead in our, tres- in our trespasses and sins. There is nothing you can do to help a dead person. Once that person is dead, they're dead, done. Nothing else can be done. A dead person is unable to save themselves, which is why we get to verse four, which is the two best words in all of scripture, if you were to ask me, but God. Salvation is a work of God alone, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love, not because of what we did, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Now for verse eight, for you are saved by grace through faith. This is not from yourselves, it is God's gift. Once again, getting back to the rich young ruler, it is not what you do. It is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. How are we saved? Grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone. You can you, later search it up. There's a, there's a clip by Alistair Begg. You can search it up. It's called the, the Man on the Middle Cross Told Me I Could Come. Search it up. It's great. Have you, have you seen it? It's a great, it's a great little clip about the salvation of the guy who was on the cross next to Jesus. It's really good. But but Begg starts by effectively saying in this sermon that if you get to heaven or you get on the other side of this life and somebody asks you why you should be let in, if you begin with I, you're wrong. You've lost out. You've missed the mark. It is not me. How are you saved? By grace, through faith, in Christ. 
That's it, what Jesus did. It's not what I have done, it is what Jesus did. Now, Paul goes on to mention good works, but notice he puts the works after the salvation. We don't do good things. We don't go into the community and and try to reach people. We don't do various outreach events. We don't give food to to the hungry or clothing to the naked or, you know, take care of the poor, the fatherless, the widow, the alien. We don't do that to be saved. We do that because we have been saved. We do that because it works out in us. And and beyond that, we are only able to stand before the Lord because of the fact that we stand in Christ's righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21. This is one of the great truths of scripture. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The disciples are standing here with Jesus and he tells this rich man, it is impossible for you to enter the kingdom of heaven because of your riches. You you won't give it up. It'd be easier for that camel to be put through the eye of this needle than for you to get into heaven. And the disciples' minds are blown. How then, us who are not rich, who are unlearned, how are we gonna get into heaven? It's impossible. And Jesus says, yes, it is impossible but not for God because it is his work that gets us in. It is his work that provides for us. And if we allow him to work in us, if we allow him, if we allow the Holy Spirit to come in and open our eyes to faith and regenerate our hearts and we make that decision to follow Jesus, we give our lives over to him, the fourth thing we see in this passage is that our ultimate reward is in heaven. Our ultimate reward is in heaven. Jesus says, or Peter said, look, we have left what we had and followed you. And he said to them, truly I tell you, there's not one who has left a house, wife or brothers or sisters, parents or children because of the kingdom of God who will not receive many more, many times more at this time and eternal life in the age to come. Now I wanna step on some toes here, okay? I wanna read you a passage that I hope will really prick your heart a little bit. This comes from a book called God is the Gospel by Dr. John Piper. And it's gonna talk about heaven. I wanna read you this. In terms of our desire to be in heaven, our desire to be there. The critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness, with all the friends you ever had on earth, all the food you ever liked, all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Jesus was not there? That's a hard question. Could you be satisfied with heaven? Jesus is not there. Because Jesus makes clear in his word that eternal life is not about the physical pleasures. It's not about the natural beauty. It's about relationship with him. Now, all that stuff will come. It will be there too. Let's look at the book of John chapter 14. Here's what Jesus says. He's 
telling the disciples that they're going to have trouble in this world. But he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? And if I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. You know the way to where I'm going. Then Thomas, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will also know my Father. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. The ultimate reward that we're going to get for our faith in Christ, the endurance of this life, perseverance, the ultimate reward is going to be a place with Jesus. It's going to be with him. We sung about it earlier. The elders, the creatures around the throne singing, worthy is the lamb. We will be standing around the throne one day with people from every tribe, nation, and tongue in worship in the new Jerusalem. Revelation chapter 21 paints that picture for us. I did not see a temple in it because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it because the glory of God illuminates it. And its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never close by day because it will never be night there. They will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. Nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. And then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb down the middle of the city's main street. The tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations, and there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in its city, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. People will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Let's bring this all together here. I wanted to share this passage with you today because like I said, we are, we're in a great city, but we're in a very dangerous city. We're in a very dangerous city that leads us to think that if we do the right things or we have the right things, we have everything we need. But Jesus makes it clear that it's not about what we do and it's not about what we have. It's about him. So I'm going to ask you this question, ask you a few questions. In what or whom do you place your trust? In what or whom do you place your trust? Are you trusting in your works? Are you trusting in your possessions? Or are you trusting in Jesus alone? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word speaks to us, that your word causes us to ask ourselves difficult questions that your word causes us to see the sin that is in our hearts, the sin that remains even after we've been made new by Christ. And so God, I ask that you will 
by your Holy Spirit, speak to each of us today and help us to come before you in repentance and in humility and ask Lord Jesus for your forgiveness, ask you to lead us into new life, give us the humility to confess our sins to our brothers and sisters in Christ because your word says confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. God, I ask for you to give us peace. Lord, I know just like myself, there are people in this room who every day is a different financial issue. Every day is another bill. Every day is another request. Every day is another statement that's due. Every day or every so often there's another day we have to take off because of the kids or something else. And how are we gonna get paid? Lord, I know that, that life and provision can be a burden. And so I ask that you not only provide for our needs, but that you give us peace to face those tough circumstances. You give us the ability to not be anxious, but to trust you when we don't know what to do. Lord, help us to keep our eyes fixed on you. You are the author and perfecter of our faith. You are the one who holds all things together. You are the one who created everything with a word and you, Lord Jesus, are the one who will end everything with a single word. You are worthy of our worship. Father in heaven, be glorified by our worship today, our worship in song, in prayer, in giving, and in proclamation. Holy Spirit, impress these times upon our minds as we leave here. And Lord Jesus, continue to show yourself to us through your word so we can be more like you. In your name we pray, amen.